I'm really happy to be here today. Uh, this is my second in-person conference since the pandemic, and the energy of all of you here is just palpable. And it just feels really good to be with other people again and, and share ideas and, and share you know, fellowship. I wanted to share a little bit about my story and how I came to the place of working for BuzzFeed, whose offices are actually just like three, three blocks down. Um, I don't work there anymore, but I worked there up until about a year and a half ago. So this area of town is very familiar to me, and it's exquisite to be here together. Uh, and then I also want to talk a little bit about these terms, like burnout, or you know, in the title of this talk, things like vocational awe and clergy burnout. Um, but I'll start with just my story, which is that I grew up in a small town in northern Idaho. I was a member of a federated congregational Presbyterian church, which at the time I did not realize was a little bit weird that those two churches would come together. The membership was about 30% UCC, 70% Presbyterian, and the idea was that they would switch back and forth between a pastor every time that they'd do a call. It didn't work out that way. Um, it became very Presbyterian. I also grew up there uh, in, you know, I, I was a teen in the 90s, and anyone who was a teen in a mainline church during the 90s knows the particular flavor of evangelical quasi-cool that came to inflect our youth groups and our thinking. We kind of wanted to be like Young Life, but like maybe have a little theology, right? Um, like maybe open the Bible sometimes. Um, and I, we actually didn't have Young Life in Lewis and I always wanted to like go to Spokane where they had Young Life. I was like, that was really cool. Uh, I became very, you know, the church was the backbone of our community involvement. My mom was in the choir and like was the person we were just talking about how on, on Easter, there's always the women, it's always women who show up at 7 a.m. in their Easter clothes, perfectly done up, right? And they go to the kitchen and they start putting those casseroles in the oven because they're gonna come out and then they're gonna sit under warmers for like three hours and then someone's gonna come eat them during the, the between the services. There's my earring. Um, and I started, you know, going to youth group, then became a youth group leader. Then we had like one of those camps, a lot of you I'm sure have attended them, that is essentially just like some cabins made out of old wood and like just mice everywhere and it costs $75 for kids to go and the church pays for it if, if you can't and you go for a week and it's the best. Like you drink Kool-Aid and eat corn dogs, but it's the best. Uh, and I became a counselor there, like a CIT. And later when I was in college, I went to Whitman College, which is named for Presbyterian missionaries, but no longer Presbyterian. Uh, our, our mascot at the time was the fighting missionary. It has since been changed. Um, and I'll, I'll tell this joke just because I feel like since we had the sex jokes yesterday, like we're okay with it. Our, the, the chant for the fighting missionaries was, missionaries, missionaries, we're on top. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
I, I worked at that camp as a counselor during the summer and I thought it was the best, like it was so competitive to be, become one of the cool counselors. Competitive to get paid $500 for the entire summer, right? But it was an honor. Uh, and then I became an intern at our church where you like lived in an apartment behind the church, very weird in hindsight. Um, and then I lost my faith. And it has been a process uh, over the last 20 years trying to figuring out where does Christianity fit in my life? What does it mean to believe or not believe? Um, I think part of how I lost my faith was, you know, it wasn't a regret. It wasn't like God isn't real. Like, and I, I kind of, I do think I believe God is real. Uh, it's more that I felt completely alienated from the institution of the church. And I felt bruised by it and that the church had made me feel so much shame in my life. And that felt like something that I didn't want to be a part of. But I am obsessed with the church. Like anyone who has read my reporting knows I am obsessed. I'm deeply obsessed with figuring out parts of the church that are redeemed, that are dedicated to what I always understood as what Jesus wanted us to live our lives as, which is as people of faith, of course, people who believe um, that Jesus was the son of God, you know, all of the things that we understand as, as what we believe as Christians, but also that our mission is to love one another and to be selfless and, and not to be fixated on these communities of, of exclusion. Um, I've reported on uh, communities that are really interested in debt forgiveness communities that are really interested in worker solidarity and all of that. That's what's interesting and vital about Christianity to, to me today. And also why, you know, when Mockingbird first wanted to do an interview with me about my book, this is a subject that I think some author authors would be like, why were you, why would you spend time doing that interview? Why would you come to this conference? It's because I, the, the people that are here that are committed to this way forward are people that I want to know and people that I want to continue talking with. So after I went to college, I uh, was sure that I would get a job in academia if I just went to grad school. It's that simple, right? You go to grad school and then you become a professor. That's how it works. Uh, it's not how it works. Uh, I went and received my MA from the University of Oregon and then my PhD in media studies from the University of Texas. And I was a professor for a little while. Um, but then some, some avenues for <laughs> continuing to be a professor closed and I had been subconsciously building my own life raft away from academia by writing for the internet. Uh, and I hit a, a specific moment in writing for the internet history where there were a lot of job openings and the people at BuzzFeed News said, why don't you do what you do, which was largely at that time writing about the history of celebrity. So sounds weird, but like my, my dissertation <laughs> is on the history of celebrity gossip from 1910 to 2010. But there was a real hunger <laughs> for people who knew how to historicize celebrity, who knew how to think about celebrity images, you know, beyond just the last five years and, and think about patterns and that sort of thing. So I went to BuzzFeed and I started reporting there and um, moved to New York from Walla Walla, Washington. And uh, it's not as big of a jump as you might think. I don't know, like 
Brooklyn's not that different from Seattle or Portland. And also started thinking about other ways that I could report that weren't just based on celebrity. And this is where I started to dig into some of these other, um, what's going on in Christianity right now, essentially. I also reported a lot on the Trump campaign because at that time, all of these publications were like, how do I talk to these people at these Trump rallies who are like a foreign species? It's not a foreign species. I went to church with these people. Like I know a lot of these people. You just go up and you talk to them and they'll tell you what, you th what they think. So I did a lot of that and uh, eventually, you know, after the 2016 election, a lot of reporters, like a lot of people just generally who were uh, dismayed by what happened, surprised, uh, you know, whatever emotion you want to attach to it, were like, what can I do? And what could I do as a reporter is I could just try to report more, right? I could just try to work harder. And I threw myself into work. Even, I mean, I had thrown myself into work before because the way to survive as an academic is to work all the time. That's what made me very good at digital journalism was my capacity to work all the time. One of the things that I internalized and that you might understand if you work in any sort of passion job, which is a word I'll define in a bit, is that you come to understand that anything good is bad. So anything that gives you pleasure outside of your work, anything that feels fun, like rest, you're like, ah, oh, it's bad, right? Like I shouldn't be doing this. This is, I, you know, I should be working. And anything that's bad, AKA working all the time, that actually feels good, right? It feels like you are you're doing the work that you need to be doing. And then I burnt out. I, I, I think the real thing, there's like a sequence of events that happened. Uh, I was reporting on the 2000, 18 midterms and was on the road a ton. I followed Beto O'Rourke around Texas, like really driving like six hours and then go to a rally, drive another six hours because Texas is like the size of 17 states. Uh, and I went from there to, um, I was called, like while I was in Austin for a book event actually, I was called to cover the mass shooting in Sutherland Springs and covering mass shootings, even though you are not the person affected by them, directly affected by them, is a really traumatic experience. And went directly from that to uh, Short Creek, Utah, which is a little area on the Utah-Arizona borderland, or like border, that is home to the FLDS, uh, the fundamentalist LDS sect of the, the Mormon church. And I spent a, a week interviewing women who had fled the church and were trying, had returned to the town to try to rebuild their lives. So tons of trauma there. And then I went back into another story and just kept reporting. Oh, and also I wrote an article about the history of Army Hammer and like talking about this, this article, it's called like 10 years of trying to make Army Hammer happen. And, and there were, there's like real Army Hammer fans at that time and they kind of came after me and like threatened to, like some of the worst trolling I've received, and I've received a lot of bad trolling, but some of the worst I've received like threatened to slit my dog's throat, horrible stuff like that, right? It, that rolls off your, just rolls off the back and you're like, oh, I realize I've been doing this really, really difficult work and have not paused. And after the midterms, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna recover from my exhaustion. I'm gonna take a day off and I'm gonna get a massage. And then I came back to work and I found myself, like I would write things in my head, I was like, this isn't quite working. 
and I would burst into tears, which had never, ever, like I am not a sensitive edit in any way. And I just, I felt like, like everything felt flat. Like all the things that used to bring me joy, all the things that used to be fun, like going on vacation, everything felt like it was a to-do list, right? Just another thing to check off. And I couldn't get my errands done. This pissed me off. I couldn't, I had get the knives sharpened, right? On my list and in where I was living at the time in Missoula, Montana, getting your knives sharpened involved going to Ace Hardware. And Ace Hardware was right next to the grocery store, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't mail a return that I needed to make. I couldn't find that capacity to do those things that were on my to-do list. I was still working all the time, but I couldn't find that ability. I was, I was thinking of it as, as errand paralysis. And I did what I often do when I'm trying to figure out something that's happening in the world, is I decided I wanted to analyze it and write about it and find its history. <laughs> and as I started reading articles about things like laziness or lack of will, um, all of these different components of why I couldn't get these errands done, I really arrived at a, a body of literature describing burnout. And I didn't at first recognize it as what was afflicting me because I thought burnout was something that happened to war reporters, right? People who work in ERs. It was something that happened to people doing much more important work than what I was doing. But I also came to recognize that like some of this had to do with a work ethic that I had internalized a long time ago. And that millennials, I think, in particular, not exclusively, like millennials are definitionally 1980 to 1995. That's how Pew defines it. But just because you were born in 1979 doesn't mean that you didn't uh, experience or internalize many of the same things, including coming into a job market during the Great Recession. And what did you learn about what your work was worth? What did you learn about what you were worth? How did you approach work during that time? How did your elders talk about you and your work ethic? And any older millennial will remember that we were called lazy and indulged and spoiled. When really we were just desperate for work that treated us as humans and paid us a living wage. But it took a long time to, to reconcile that understanding. And so I, you know, basically this article how millennials became the burnout generation was born out of me trying to figure out the parameters of my own burnout. I thought it would be a moderately successful essay and it turned into, it's been read nine million times, it's totally inconceivable to me. It's also very long, it's like four of like 5,000 words. Most people who come to Buzzfeed, they see something that's longer than 10 words and they're like TLDR, right? But somehow it became something much larger and eventually then became a book, Can't Even, which uh, I basically, I, I tried to widen it in terms of really going beyond my own middle-class white elder millennial experience and also to um, add depth to it as well in terms of thinking about all of the different changes in the American workforce that led us to the point where we think of work in the way that we do, where we burn out the way that we do, where we conceive of a child as a resume starting when they're very young. Uh, and then also what was going on with the boomers <laughs> that 
led us to this point, the precarity that boomers experienced in the 70s and 80s at the end of what's often called the golden age of American capitalism that actually just lasted about 20 years, and how what happened to boomers also was passed down and internalized by millennials, and how there's actually a lot more in common between those generations than the antagonism that is often ascribed to us really, really covers. And since then, I've just been thinking about work a ton. Uh, it's something that I never ever thought as someone, I, I grew up a mathlete and then was you know, interested in PhD, like celebrity gossip, the fact that I now would be reading workbooks and thinking about work and labor all the time is really fascinating to me. But it also, I think, is an extension of the fact that I've always been kind of a personal essay person, and this is my way of writing about my life, is thinking about work, thinking about how we have arrived at this place in American life where everyone I know is exhausted. Like, what does that mean about the way we have arranged life, contemporary life today? And so, as we move forward, and I, I'm very eager to have it, you know, any questions that you might want to talk about more, but I want to define a couple of terms from my work generally, and also just so that we can have a shared vocabulary. So burnout, that feeling that I'm trying to describe, it's not just like you hit the wall and you're so exhausted and you're like, okay, I have to, I have to rest for a week. The way that I'm talking about burnout is much more, you hit the wall, you scale the wall, and then you keep going. And it's that temperature at that elevation of just keep going, right? Because you don't have any other choice. There seems to be no other choice in your life other than to just endure. And I think a lot of us felt that during the pandemic in one way or another and are still in various forms of recovery from it. The other thing about um, burnout is it's often uh, the result of not having catharsis. So working really hard is not the problem here. I oftentimes think about my time in college where you would, you would work really hard cramming for your final, right? And then you put all of this knowledge that you had accumulated onto the page. This is, we had blue books that you wrote by hand, right? Like, so it feels like a different era. And then you, like, you would collapse, right? Like I often got really sick after, after my finals because I had poured all of myself into them. But the important thing was, I went home and then I slept for like a week, right? And we had a months long break between semesters that I think was very intentionally meant for real recovery. And I remember, you know, at the end of that months long break, even though I often, I would babysit or I would work part-time jobs, like stuff that was not intellectually taxing, but was, was still some sort of work. But I would be so excited to come back for that second semester and so much of that was because I had had a real recuperation. I had worked incredibly hard, I had experienced catharsis, and then I had recuperation to start it again. We have cut out <laughs> the catharsis and the recuperation from our lives. Uh, the other thing about burnout is that like, it, it can happen in all sorts of people and all sorts of jobs, that sort of thing, but I think that it pools around certain sorts of jobs. And those jobs are oftentimes passion jobs. Sometimes I think of passion jobs as like any job that part of the reason you did it was you heard the maxim, do what you love and you won't work a day for the rest of your life. <laughs> when it's really like, do what you love and you will work every day for the rest of your life. 
Uh, and passion jobs are jobs where you, you know, it's lovable work. It's work that you find inspiration in. It's work that um, you would do maybe even if you weren't paid for it. And because it's work that is oftentimes very in demand, that means that you can be paid very little for it. And that might seem counterintuitive, right? Like if this is job, a job that everyone wants to do, but what it really oftentimes means is that people, there are so many people who are willing to do this work, right? The job pool is so large that they, you don't have to be paid very much at all in order to, to do that work. If you quit, if you say, no, that's, that's too much, that's not enough money, I can't, I can't survive in the city, there's always gonna be someone to fill your place. And lovable jobs are things like the media industry broadly, uh, social work, teaching, uh, clergy, um, anything, like a lot of nonprofit work, often like librarianship. There, uh, there's also a commonality here that a lot of these jobs are feminized. Um, and part of the reason they're feminized is because they're low paid and part of the reason they're feminized is because oftentimes they started in a place where they were not paid. So librarians are, are a really interesting example in this case because librarian, the, it, the vocation of librarianship was kind of a spur off of the church. And so the people who were doing it were supported by the church, didn't have to make a living wage. And that gradually turned into contemporary librarianship where a lot of people doing the work, it's, and there's an idea that like, oh, they're just kind of doing it for pin money. Pin money is a word that my grandma used to always say. It's like, it's for spare change, essentially. <laughs> it's for, you know, there's someone else in your family unit who is, who is making the, the real salary and you're just doing it for extra. Uh, other terms had associated with these passion jobs is the term vocational awe. So this is a term that was coined by a librarian, Fabazi Attar, and the entire article that she's written about this, this understanding is, is absolutely worth your time. And I think if you read it, like every single place where she puts librarian, you could put in like clergy or faith work and it would make sense. Vocational law is the idea that like because you are doing something that is a calling and because you conceive of the work that you are doing and others conceive of the work that you are doing as altruistic, as, as pure in some way, as good, that it renders the vocation and the, the industry around it immune to critique or resistant to critique. So there's an idea, and she was talking about this specifically in the field of librarianship, there's this idea that like, we do such good, we are so important, you know, we are the upholders of democracy, <laughs> that there is so little room to talk about unfair wages, exploitation, the, the expanding jobs, so what happens when there are budget cuts and the jobs of four people become the job of one. And also the unbearable whiteness, as she puts it, of librarianship, right? Like there's, a, there's an incredible white supremacist understanding that undergirds um, what happens in libraries. That might seem weird to think about if you just if you hear that phrase, but there, like, there are a lot of norms, a lot of understandings that are very much rooted in whiteness at the heart of the way that libraries are, are run. And the other thing that I want to talk about is, uh, what's the fourth one? I wrote all these down. Oh, um, policy shift. This is kind of a wonky, wonky term, but I come across it all the time when I'm thinking about, 
oh, like why do we, like why is there a childcare crisis? Why is there an elder care crisis? Why are these fundamental parts of society that were constructed to try to make things run smoothly, like why aren't they running smoothly anymore? And so much of it is that policy was created at a certain point in the past to fit with the realities of that moment in the past. Since then, our reality has shifted, but our policy has not. So, so many parts of American society and the way that we think about a social safety net, the way that we think about work, the way we think about the school day for children, the way that our calendar is oriented, so much of it was for when many families, not all, but the majority of American families had someone who was at home most of the time and had a single income that could support their family. That is no longer the case. And the reason why I bring it up here is because I think it's actually a really excellent way of understanding clergy burnout and many of the problems that churches are having in terms of retaining clergy and, and sustaining, <laughs> sustaining the, those that are there is because the, the way that we have thought about placing clergy, the way that we have thought about the way that a church works is based on this understanding of, first of all, far, far, far more people going to church and contributing to church in various ways, contributing monetarily, but also contributing in, for, in terms of labor. And then also that they would be married and this was from a much older understanding when most of the people who were clergy were men who had wives who also fulfilled a lot of the, the parts of, of running the church. And then also that they could have a salary that would sustain them so that their only job would be running the church. And that is not a reality for many people who are parts of churches today. They have to be working side gigs to make them sustainable and they're drowning in student debt in a way that was no longer the case, right? So this is a problem with credentialism, with the way that we think about like, how do you get to the point where you can be a pastor or a member of the clergy and how much debt do you accumulate in that process? But then also what happens when the pastor is in the church? So about a year ago, I asked for stories of clergy burnout because I had heard from so many people who had uh, you know, just when I like published the article and in various follow-up articles, I just heard from a lot of clergy. And whenever I see a pattern, whenever I see a certain sort of uh, vocation, a certain part of the world that is emailing me a lot about things, I, I want to dig deeper and try to figure out what's going on there. And so I asked to collect, I, I put out a call out to, to hear more about what was fueling clergy burnout in particular. And I heard from hundreds of people I ended up only publishing, you know, I think around eight of their stories, and these were clergy from all different faith traditions. And a huge part of it was that they were either essentially tasked with running the church, like the, the entire, like shouldering all of the church themselves, one person. Especially difficult when a church is dying. And this is something that I, I've learned a lot about, um, thinking about people who are in other precarious or... Uh, precarious institutions like academia, when you are in this, this uh, environment of scarcity or where you feel like things are, are d 
are shrinking or that you are somehow responsibility, responsible for turning everything around makes everything harder. The weight is so much more, so much more difficult and it leads to a lot more burnout. But I also heard from people who didn't know what else they could do, right? They felt that they were only valuable as clergy. I mean, these are some of the most, you have so many skills if you are in this position, but oftentimes it's almost like an abusive relationship and, you know, where in abusive relationships, the partner says, you are only valuable because I love you. If you leave, there is nothing valuable about you. No one will want you. And that oftentimes in passion jobs is how people conceive of themselves, right? They are only valuable when they are in this relationship with this job but the job is the abuser. <laughs> and that is really difficult to grapple with when we think about professions and vocations that are otherwise so filled, like they're wonderful. Oftentimes you really do do what you love, but that also oftentimes describes an abusive relationship. So those are some general terms and some general ideas that are floating around in my head. And I am eager to extrapolate or go in any weird directions that any of you might lead me. So I'd love to hear some questions. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, um, it's interesting, about a month ago I was invited to an online clergy conference which was called um, uh, Life After the Pandemic. <laughs> and it was um, a number of non-denominational evangelical clergy, because they usually have better insights into the culture than the mainline. Yeah. And um, anyway, I joined this, and I thought it was about uh, going to be about church after the pandemic, but it was literally it was a job fair, and about how um, you know you can leave your pa you can leave the pastorate, you know you make a great investment banker, you make a great this, you make a great that, and I was like sitting there, I was blown away and um, by the whole experience, but. Is there a way out of burnout, do you think? <laughs> this is a great question. Um, so yesterday, I actually gave a talk to, at a librarian conference, which uh, in some ways was similar to yours in that I think some of the people there were like, is this my last librarian conference? Like, am I, where's my off-ramp? Where's my lifeboat, you know? Uh, but I was there to talk about, to both acknowledge how hard that they had worked over the course of the last two years, how hard the last two years had been on them, but also to try to offer a way forward. And this is, you know, oftentimes people are like, did you solve your burnout? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, like promoting a book on burnout just made me more burned out. But uh, <laughs> I, I can recognize its signs with much more, like I, I know when it's coming, right? And for me, everyone has different signs. For me, it's always when I can't read fiction, right? At night, I can't. I love fiction so much. And that book will be there on the, the bedside table. And I'll just be like, I'm going to play Spelling Bee, right? Or I'm going to scroll through Instagram. Because my mind can't grapple with actually doing the things that I love. And that, that, that maybe that's a better way of saying it more broadly, is that oftentimes, the, the number one sign or one's number one sign of burnout is that you don't do the things you actually want to do. And I think that the real solution, I mean, part of it is, is real recuperation, is actual rest, which takes more than a week and can take more than a month. And after the pandemic, for a lot of people, 
a lot of you, what you really need is a sabbatical, and it's probably not coming. And so some people have built up financial cushions that allow them to take at least a month of, you know, medical leave or to transition between jobs and to create some sort of space in there. It's, it's kind of like um, the, the first couple of weeks, I feel like you don't actually relax. You don't actually know what you're doing. It's, you feel very antsy, like you need to be checking your email all the time. And then something starts to change after two or three weeks. And you remember a different sort of rhythm to your life and figuring out like, oh, what, is, what does it look like when I'm actually choosing what I want to do instead of being driven by this manic need to be productive at all times? And then the other thing though, is I think like if you can't take that or if you've taken that and you're trying to figure out how can I build a way forward? How can I find the sustainable way forward? The one huge thing is it has to be structural. And this is why when like we talk about student debt, <laughs> first of all, like Biden forgive stuff already. Uh, but also uh, I think that this is a conversation that especially mainline churches need to have about like, what are we asking people to spend in order to be our leaders? How can we come up with other you know, alternate funding means or, or change the way that this dynamic works so that when someone enters into the church, they're not saddled with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And that's real, those are real numbers, right? Like when I talk to the clergy about their burnout, a lot of them, they, they told me their, their actual debt numbers. And we can't bank on student loan, public service student loan forgiveness. It's just not reliable enough. So if we can't trust the national system to change, how are we going to change it internally in terms of what we are asking in terms of credentials and that sort of thing? But then it also has to happen on the level of the church, right? It has to happen in terms of what I call guardrails. So boundaries are totally flexible. They're made to be blown away. Like millennials like me, like the way that we made our names, the way we became successful was by blowing past anything approximating personal boundaries. Guardrails are things, are ways of doing. They're the status quo at an organization that says we have these in place to protect everyone. They are structural and they are maintained from the top to the bottom. And I know this is sometimes difficult, especially if someone is, uh, you know, in a position where they need to be called upon and at various odd times of the day or night. They need to be that person that is available in most, at most times. But how do you like, share that call? How do you share that burden of being the person that is necessary? I mean, the, the medical profession has figured this out in terms of we divide call so that not every doctor is available at all times and thus vigilant at all times. So how do you figure that out? How do you figure that out if you're the only person in your church who is, is responsible? Like you, you are the only one who can receive that call. Sometimes it has to mean sacrificing some of that availability as much as you want it, as much as you want to be that person who is always available to preserve yourself. And that's the sort of sacrifice that like sometimes more or less is more. Like we, I think a lot of us understand that intrinsically that like less is more, but sometimes more is also less. When you make yourself available, when you don't have guardrails that are put in place around, this is the times that it's okay to contact me. This is how long you can expect in order to return, receive a response from me. 
If you don't have those things in place, you are overextending yourself in a way that makes you less valuable, that makes you a worse version of yourself to all of the people who need you. And that means people who need you in your vocational life and also people who need you in your personal life. And I think one of this is, it's difficult in passion jobs where you oftentimes feel very much aligned with the work that you do, that it becomes so absorbing that there is nothing outside of it, right? All you do, you live the church. All of your friends are from the church. Uh, all of your social activities are affiliated with people from the church. Like your soccer pickup game, it's all, it's like a church league, right? Like everything is church. And that doesn't leave any place for any sort of other cultivation of self. And so one thing I tell people who don't have a church in their life is that they have to cultivate some sort of community outside of their work. This doesn't work, <laughs> I think, when you're talking to people who are involved in the church because they're like, well, this, you know, I have all these friends. I actually do have a community. I have the thing that people are jealous of in a lot of ways. But it's also your job. And so it's very hard to come up with ways to, to separate from yourself from that. So my advice would be something that like, I actually remember when I was growing up, one time I went to like the gym, uh, this little like rink-a-dink kind of YMCA gym. And I saw my pastor there playing racquetball. And it was like seeing Santa Claus with his clothes off, right? You're like, oh, my pastor's wearing shorts. Like, it's just, um, <laughs> But he had a life playing racquetball with people who weren't from the church. He had a part of a corner of his life that was not him being a pastor first and foremost. And that was an essential source of nourishment for him. And that's something that I think all of us are pretty bad at because when you are so tired from doing your work all the time, it feels like there's very little left of you to do anything outside of work. But part of the reason you were so tired from doing work all the time is because there is no other place where you are finding joy and sustain, like a sustained source of self. There is also a tendency, this is particularly amongst millennial-ish age people, and, but I think other people have it as well, to turn those other things, that thing that is not your work, into something that you are the best at or that you can make money off of or monetize in some way. Because you're good at it, so you might as well make money off it, right? A really good and nourishing hobby is something that you are bad at. It is something that you would never put on Instagram. Like, I am a crappy gardener. I am a decent but not great gardener. And part of the reason that it is such a lifeline for me is because I am not trying to win it. I'm not trying to make it into a line on my CV. And that is essential. Another question? Hi. Hi. Oh my gosh, wow. I'm Lindsay. Um, and we actually have a, funnily, funnily enough, kind of a similar background. Um, I'm a millennial, obviously, raised in the church, kind of did the whole pipeline. I was also a media studies major, so lots of things. But I was in Young Life. <laughs> growing up um, and I find it fascinating I thought that was a really honest approach um, at the very beginning especially talking about where you're at and your faith journey and I've uh, gone through a series of um, more convinced in my faith versus less and 
Um, I thought it was really beautiful what you said at the very beginning. I think that I believe in God. Um, and I noticed that you used at the, the very beginning of your talk the word redemption. And I've kind of been thinking about that as you've been speaking uh, because it seems, although not explicitly stated, um, something that you're very interested in just in working culture. How do we bring redemption or restoration to overworked people and overworked culture and overworked generation? And so I'm curious, just not knowing quite where you stand right now in terms of um, faith and your approach to God, how, if at all, that perspective, that faith perspective determines um, the or not determines, but influences the principles that you are pursuing now. So how much of your experience in the church or your understanding of God influences um, the ways in which you're trying to break or improve the status quo of work culture now? Yeah, great question. Uh, I would have been like, I would have thought you were like the cool counselor if, if we met someone, because you were in Young Life. Uh, I... There's a couple of ways to think about this. You know, after I wrote the burnout essay, uh, I, got, I received an email from someone who has now become a good friend of mine. And he said, you know, I grew up Seventh-day Adventists. All, you know, and Seventh-day Adventists are much, uh, are very evangelical, are very, very concerned with, um, with conversion, with converting people. And he and he was the son of a pastor too so a lot going on there uh, and he was like I was so burnt out by the time I was 21 because every time I was sleeping I was like there's another soul that died that I didn't save right like the entire precept of like of, of, of converting people and of, of making that the very heart of ministry is a burnout machine because anytime you are not working, you are losing a soul, right? You are losing an opportunity. You can always do more. And that is an incredible burden to put on someone, to put on a young child, right? That every interaction is an opportunity for them and ever, every act, interaction that doesn't end in a like, let me tell you about my friend Jesus uh, is somehow a failure. And so I think that... One thing that I've tried to do in, in my writing, even though it's persuasive, I, I'm, I'm not trying to convert people to, to my gospel. I wanna try to meet people where they are. You know, this is something that I've, I've just felt a lot of, you know, hearing the talks yesterday and the devotional this morning, it's like how different it is when we stop trying to bring someone to our level and to our understanding as like a personal, like a check mark, right? A thing that we are doing for God. And as opposed to trying to meet them where they are. And, you know, yesterday's talk, talk thinking about like the, the technologies of the heart and how effective that is. You know, one of the, the my most popular essays are always what I think of as feelings posts when I just write about my feelings for a little bit. And I'm not trying to make people feel what I'm feeling more so I'm trying to say, I, I, here's what I'm hearing from so many people in my life. I'm trying to put my words around a structural, a feeling that we have. And the thing that people say to me is you made me feel seen. 
And that to me, I think that that's accomplishing what I want to do with a technology of the heart is to make someone feel seen, feel like I am, I have listened and I am trying to mirror back what they are saying to me. Not tell them what to do about it because I don't have answers. I'm not like a, you know, my book is a bit, my latest book is a business book that actually doesn't have solutions. <laughs> uh, but it's more, you know, let's, let's see where we are and then see where we can find hope from that place. And that seems different to me than what I have come to understand is a lot of the manipulation of technologies of the heart that sometimes takes place in the church, right? Like there was a night when I was, when I would go to church camp, we always thought of it as Friday night was cry night, right? <laughs> when like, you just like, you know, playing like the, the, whatever praise song was like the big hit at that moment, just like playing it on repeat and everyone, you have all these like 15 and 16 year olds giving their life to God, but actually just like trying to feel something and feel it purely, like, like wanting to feel and to have an avenue to place those feelings. And I always knew like some, like some people at the, the camp felt like kind of iffy about it, right? Cause like, why don't we just make this into a feelings night? Why do we have to turn it into a moment where we also take those feelings and turn them into like, do you want to give your life to God? Do you want to give your life to God? Like, come on in. It's more like, this was an incredible experience that you had. Where do we go from there? And so I think that that, that that actually really shows up in my work a lot is like pushing back on that, that feeling of manipulation and trying to meet people where they are. And that includes too in the community that, that we've fostered around the newsletter and we have like a big Discord community is trying to assume the good intent. So when someone says something that makes someone feel less than in some way, right? If someone says something that doesn't acknowledge a structural power imbalance, how do I as a leader and how do the moderators and how do other members of the community say, I know that you like mean well, we don't wanna coddle you. We don't wanna be like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Here's, we wanna say exactly what needs to change about the way that you're using language or the way that you are behaving in this community. But also we want you here. And that I think is the, something that I, is also the lesson of, of so many years in the church is like, how do you make it into a big tent that says like, we might not all agree on all of these things theologically, but also we might not all believe in God one of the most powerful churches I've ever visited, I remember like I told the pastor afterwards, I was like, I don't know where I am with the God thing. And, and she was like, I don't know either, right? And how, like, how do we create that instead of this space where people of different identities, people at different places in their journey don't feel welcome at all, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, it's 10.30. So Amazing. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha,